Good morning, my name is Taylor Reevely. It's a joy to be with you as we gather this morning, as we do every week, to fix our eyes on Jesus and follow him together. And it just so happens that last week completed another season, and no, it wasn't the rainy season, it was the tax season. And every time about this year, we're reminded that nothing in life is certain except for death and taxes. Now, there are some daredevils who seem to cheat death over and over. They're all over YouTube. You don't need to, you should go look for some. Um, And then there are some really um, foolhardy people who cheat or evade taxes regularly. It kind of maybe looks like they get away, but it comes for all of us. All of us, that is, except for one. There is one person who doesn't, uh, isn't subject to death and doesn't owe taxes, who has every right to evade both. Imagine for a moment what this person is like. Who is it? Who is the one who has the right to never die and the right to never owe a man a thing? Jesus. Thank you. It does not seem to be a coincidence, though, that last week in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus foretold his impending death. And this week, as we open and conclude in chapter 17, Jesus pays his taxes. He has every right not to. But as the Christ hymn in Philippians 2 makes clear, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being bound, born in the likeness of men. Fully God, yes, but fully man. My question is this, why did Jesus lay down his rights? What is it that enabled him, who, that freed him to do that? I think you can make a really strong argument that he was motivated by love. But I think a better argument would be that Jesus knew his Father. He knew his Father and was absolutely certain that God would take care of him. In the most monumental detail, his death He believed that God would take care of him and would raise him on the third day and exalt him and give him a name above every other name, freeing him to lay down his rights. And now in Matthew 17, in the most minute detail of a a small negligible tax, he is likewise certain that God will take care of him and provide the exact amount needed. So would you please open your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 17, and follow along as I begin reading in verse 24. Here we'll find that it is because God provides for his son that the son is free to lay down his rights. This is Matthew, chapter 17, beginning in verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. 
saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This fantastical fishing story serves in Matthew's narrative as a transition from the great confession, you are the Christ, son of the living God, and the demonstration of that reality in the transfiguration where God says, you're my be- this is my beloved son. Now it's transitioning to chapter 18's discourse on family life, the life of the kids in the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to walk through this passage from top to bottom and hang our hats on a couple, on the the two questions that Peter has asked in their subsequent response. And then finally, this command or action required will conclude the story. It's a simple enough story with a simple enough structure and organization, but it will take a little bit of work from us this morning to understand the text and apply it to our lives. So, are you ready? Question number one is in verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? Following Peter's great confession in the transfiguration, Jesus announced his, his impending death and resurrection, which was to take place in Jerusalem. And as soon as that began, they marked, it marked the start of a journey, a return south to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration where those events would transpire. And on their way to Jerusalem, the band of disciples followed their leader to Capernaum, a city in the region of Nazareth on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now this has been an important setting so far in Matthew's narrative. Jesus refers to Capernaum as his own town. So he's back home. Peter's, this is Peter's literal hometown where he was from. And in Capernaum, it is where Matthew was called as a tax collector to follow Jesus. And Matthew would have been there in Capernaum because it was a toll center, situationally a position between Rome in the north and Jerusalem in the south. So the political taxes went north to Rome and the religious taxes went south to the temple in Jerusalem. And his familiarity with the tax law and the tax code and Capernaum may be one of the reasons why this is the only gospel which includes this account. So there in Capernaum, the disciples arrive most likely to spend the night at Peter's house on the way south. And there, some tax collectors come knocking. And they come knocking for the two drachma tax. glad that we all are familiar with that tax and we can proceed. The two drachma tax. So the drachma was a currency, so money, from the region of Tyre that is equivalent to about a quarter of a Jewish shekel. The two drachma tax then cost two drachmas or half of a shekel. Now, the origins of this tax are recorded in Exodus chapter 30, where God commands Moses, when you take the census of the people, 
of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give to the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than the half shekel which you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it to the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. This text had a pretty clear purpose in Exodus 30. It was a payment of ransom, a payment for atonement. Now the sacrifices for by which a person would be atoned of their sin, forgiven of their sin, took place in the temple. And so this tax directly correlated to the service of the atonement which took place in the temple on behalf of all the people. Now you notice it was supposed to happen every time there was a census. And those didn't happen very often. So periodically, all the people of Israel were to make this offering, pay this tax to the temple um, as a reminder that they belonged to God and were dependent on Him. However, it appears that this had become now a more routine thing. Temple service could use a little bit extra. It's not that much money. And so it had become an annual tax. And there were some conscientious objectors in the day to this tax. So the job of the tax collectors was to actually hunt individuals down, remind them that a tax was due, and expect, encourage, demand that they would pay. Interestingly, though, when they ask their question, they don't ask Jesus directly, they ask Peter. Likely because they're at Peter's house. And he's the man of the house and a citizen in the city, but his answer then is a response on behalf of Jesus. The question is this. Does your teacher not pay the tax? The question's asked with a negative that assumes a positive response, a little bit like saying, your teacher pays the tax, does he not? Well, it's an interesting question to ask a rabbi who culturally would have been exempt from the temple tax because of his service in the work of the Lord. But Jesus was, well, an unsanctioned rabbi, a rabble-rouser rabbi. So the question, does your teacher not pay the tax? And Peter's answer then is about as straightforward as it gets. Look with me at verse 25. He said, yes. And that's the last we hear of the tax collectors. And apparently that answer is satisfactory to them. But I want to suggest that even as the words came out of Peter's mouth, it likely wasn't satisfactory to him. That there was a moment where, and we have been set up for this in the narrative so far, to question Peter's responses to things. He has a great response to, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, son of the living God. Exceptional clarity. And then in the next moment, oh, you're, you're certainly, certainly not going to die. I, that, that cannot happen. 
You can picture him here answering the tax collector so clearly, so concisely, so definitively, only to open the door to the house and see Jesus standing there, looking him right in the eyes. Clearly, as he enters the house, something's on his mind. It seems as though Peter was just blowing off the tax collectors like you might do of a solicitor between the garage door and the front door after a long day of work. But in doing that, he is representing, speaking on behalf of the Christ, the Son of the living God, which is no small thing. So we should pause here now for just a moment. And we've, we've had one question asked of Peter and one response. Does your teacher not pay the tax? Yes, he does. What do you think? Is Peter right? Is his answer correct? Because on the one hand, from all that we know about Jesus, he seems to be the one person that really has the right to refuse to pay the temple tax, if it is true that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We'll continue reading as we move to the second question from the mouth of Jesus. This is verse 25. And when Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? So Peter enters the house, and before he can open his mouth, Jesus is standing there with a question. Perhaps he overheard the conversation, but the scripture leaves room for us to say, Jesus anticipated. He knew what was going on in Peter's heart and mind. After all, he knew Peter well. And his question is this, what do you think, Simon? There's not an ellipsis there in the text during which you can hear the proverbial clock ticking and the pin drop as the wheels start to churn in Peter's mind. What do you think, Simon? In that moment, oh man, I can't imagine. Whatever confidence Peter had that his answer was at least passable, if not correct, it was surely gone. Would Jesus actually pay the tax? Should he even pay the tax? Is he, ob- he is obligated to pay the tax. I mean, all of these questions. What do you think? Well, Jesus' question continues. From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And what Jesus is doing by asking this question is he's, he's saying, okay, we were, do- we were talking about a very specific thing here, the temple tax, and I'm going to ask you a question. How about all taxes levied by all kings of the earth? Okay, so in general, all kings of the earth, who, do, who pays taxes? The sons of the kings, the princes, or the sons of others, the strangers? Only one answer could be correct, so he simplifies things for Peter in that regard. And it seems here that Peter answers this question correctly. In verse 26, when Peter said, from others, then Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Jesus doesn't always ask such layup questions. There are some questions he asks that are harder than that one. 
And Peter just nails it, knocks it out of the park. Yes, the kings of the earth pay charge taxes to others. But here's where things get interesting. Here's, here's like the climax of this passage from the words of Jesus. Then the sons are free. The sons are free. The sons of the kings of earth are free from their obligation to pay the tax. The tax collectors in the kingdoms of earth have no authority over the sons of the king who are exempt. The sons have all the rights and privileges of the king himself because they belong to the king. And he would never tax his own children. So track the argument with me here, okay? There is a very generic principle that all the kings of the earth... Do not tax their own sons. The sons are free. Now, in this narrow instance, what about the temple tax? This two drachma tax being asked today. You need to ask yourself the small question. Who then is the king of this tax? Who is the king of the temple God is the king of the temple. Who is the king of the temple's son? Jesus is the son. So you should be able to draw a line and say, therefore, the son, Jesus, is free, not obligated to pay the tax to his father. Peter's already identified Jesus as the Son of the living God. He's already witnessed the voice from the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Peter was doing so well for just a moment there until it became clear this Son is actually free from the tax of the temple. This one who he just spoke on behalf of is the son of the king. The only one in human history who is exempt from the temple tax is the son of God himself. If the general is true, then the specific here is also true. Peter could have, should have, perhaps, said, no, he doesn't pay the tax. He doesn't have to. He is the son of God. He is the rightful heir. It's already his. Not even God himself taxes his own sons. But there's also another reason that Jesus is exempt from paying this tax. You remember in Exodus 30, it had a specific purpose. It was for the ransom of a body and the atonement of a life. There is only one person in history who is in no need of ransom. Or atonement. There is only one sinless Savior, Jesus, who owes nothing and instead came to offer his life as a ransom for many. Who needs to pay no atonement, instead comes to offer his life as the atoning sacrifice once and for all, for all who believe. 
So you would be right to conclude that there is one, Jesus, the only person who had every right to stand up for his rights and just dodge this silly, simple little tax that was made extravagant through human tradition. Continue with me. What does he do? Look at the command he gives, the action that concludes in verse 27. Jesus says, however, you shouldn't expect this, Okay, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. The only person who had every right to stand up for his rights is also now freed to lay them down. Notice his motivation there at the beginning, so as not to give offense to them. Jesus hasn't really seemed to care about whether or not he's offensive yet to this point. The last time this word was used was in uh, Matthew 15, where the Pharisees had a, Jesus had a problem with the Pharisees about their tradition of washing hands. And following that interaction, the disciples come to him and say, did you know that you offended them? Offended? And the word is a scandalizo, from which we would derive scandal. What is different here? Why does Jesus care here to not cause offense? There's probably a couple options that are good options. I think you could suggest he had a different relationship with tax collectors than he did with Pharisees. He comes eating and drinking and reclining at table with tax collectors and and sinners because he's, he's here for the sick and not for the healthy, the Pharisees. And so, he doesn't want to put any barrier between him and the tax collectors and sinners for the sake of his mission, so he will just pay the tax. That's probably a good, a good suggestion. I think you could also suggest, though, that the, tra- the nature of the tradition of the hand-washing and the nature of the tax are different in, the, in their source. God has instituted the tax, and man has instituted the hand-washing, and Jesus is going to cause offense about man's tradition, but uphold God's tradition. He is wise and discerning in that way. You probably, that's probably a good reason as well. But I think we really need to ask the question, who is the them that he wishes not to offend? The tax collectors in Capernaum? The disciples in the house? The Jewish audience who was on pins and needles waiting to see what this guy's going to do next? The Pharisees, maybe, who are looking for an opportunity? I think the answer is yes, them. You see, the scandal, the offense that Jesus is avoiding here is exactly the related to the command that he gave Peter after uh, the great confession and the transfiguration. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell them. We read this story with the death and resurrection of Jesus in view, but those in this day, in this moment, did not have a framework for who Jesus is and what he was about to do. He had not yet displayed his sonship to the world, He was, in the eye of every beholder, save perhaps for Peter, James, and John, a good teacher and a healer, and hopefully a deliverer of the Jews 
from under the thumb of Rome. But he was not yet known or revealed to be the Son of God. Now this is relevant here because those are the grounds by which he is rightful in his claim to avoid the tax. I'm the Son. And so to use that argument to evade the temple tax would have been to prematurely make public what was yet to be kept secret. The news would have been the scandal of scandals, the offense of offenses to everyone who heard. The mission would have been compromised. It wasn't time to play that card yet. So yes, the son is free in principle. He's exempt from his father's tax laws, but instead of fighting for his rights, the son lays aside his rights and submits even to a a tax that he does not owe and a tax that he's come to do away with entirely because the time of his glory had not yet come. So what does he do? What does he do? Peter says, yes, he pays the tax. Jesus says, I'm the only person in the whole world who doesn't have to pay the tax. You really got me in a pickle, Peter. What a, what, what, I have to now, right? What is he going to do? Is the son really free or is the son now bound? Well, look at what happens next. He commands Peter to go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and open its mouth There's a coin. You'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. I remember this story with vivid clarity. I think I can see the illustration from the children's storybook Bible uh, when I was a child. It sounds too good to be true. It sounds like you can't make this up. Go fishing. For the first time in the Bible, they're using a hook and a line. Every time there's been a net. So you want one fish. Not Not a whole time. We want one. Take the first one, open its mouth, and there's a coin. Use it to pay the tax. It sounds too good to be true. It it is. You could see uh, through these words, just see Jesus, the twinkle in his eye as he kind of smiles at Peter who just gets him in predicament after predicament saying, guess what? Just just go fishing. It's all going to be okay. God will provide for us. Some of you just heard your application for this morning's message and you're, you're about to head out with your line. I tell you, I've been fishing. That's not how it works. This is a miracle, a miraculous provision that God would intervene and meet the needs of his son so that his son could freely lay down his rights is a miracle. And then he says, take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So Jesus ends up paying the temple tax. Was he obligated? No. Was he conflicted? No. Did he have every right to refuse? Yes. Was he absolutely free? Yes. God provides so that Jesus can freely lay down his rights. If God does not provide the coin from the mouth of the fish, Jesus is at least conflicted about opening the disciples' bag of donated money to pay a tax he doesn't owe. 
But through God's provision of the coin, Jesus, without constraint, to freely pass along that shekel from the mouth of the fish to the tax collectors. But you can't miss the most important, significant reality here. The shekel, you remember, is enough to pay the tax for two people, the half-shekel half tax. And Jesus, once again, lays down his rights. It would be his right as the rightful son to say, take it to them and bring me the change. And he doesn't do that. No, in this moment, Jesus, in effect, identifies Peter as his brother. Peter, who had gotten just about everything wrong, since his great confession is adopted and identified as a son who shares in the rights and privileges the freedom of being the son of the king. This moment seems to be a signal that throughout their history, the Israelites had been identified as the children of the king. But there is a new... Uh, and a new sonship being created here. A new people whom Jesus is not ashamed to call brother. Even those who deny him, even of those who get him in a pickle. Well, now we can finally reap the reward of some of the heavy lifting this morning. Who then are the sons of God who are free to lay down their rights because God provides for them? Who then are the children of the king who have all the rights and privileges of being royalty? Who then are the sons and daughters who give and receive freely with open hands instead of closed fists? Galatians 4 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave or a stranger, you're a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Every benefit, every privilege of being a child of the king belongs to you. So you too can lay down your rights because God provides for you. And what does that look like? What is this life like? There is no temple tax today. And this sermon isn't about taxes. It's not about tithing. It's not even really about money. You need to know, though, that because God provides, you are free to be generous. That is kind of the, the easiest application. You can give without compulsion, knowing that God will provide for you. But I think the application extends further. You might have a right to speak your mind 
a right to have your way. You might even be right to have the right. But because you're a child of the king, you are free to set aside that right and be silent. Believing God will take care of you. You might have a right to the pursuit of happiness. But because you're a child of the king who provides for you, you're free to set aside that right for the sake of the happiness of another. Trusting that God will take care of you. For, for us, the applications are about as numerous as our list of entitlements. But the, the text also begs another question. How then do I become a son, a child of the king? How do I get this benefit for this kind of self-giving, self-sacrificing, free life? This too God has provided. Formerly, a sacrifice of atonement would be, need to be made regularly for the forgiveness of your sins and a price would need to be paid for the ransom of your souls. And this Jesus has done. Because he has set aside his rights and died a death he didn't deserve as the final atonement for your sin and the ransom for your soul, you can enter in. You're welcomed as a child of the King through faith. And as his child... You're free. No, you're invited. You're even expected to crawl up to the lap of your dad who sits on the throne. There is a measurable and incalculable safety and security in knowing that you belong forever to the king of the universe. He is good. He knows you by name as a child. He is strong, strong enough to defend you. He's wise. He cannot be fooled or manipulated. He understands you. He is rich. He has all the treasure to reward you. He's just. He will always do what is right. He is love. There's nothing you could do that would make him love you any less and nothing you could do that would make him love you any more. That safety and security is the most liberating reality in the world. If in the kingdoms of earth it's better to be a son than a stranger, so it is in the kingdom of heaven. It is better to be a son than a stranger. Would you climb into the lap of your daddy, the good eternal king today, that you may delight in all of the reward and all of the freedom that comes with being a child of the king? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are, we are humbled to call you our big brother, the one who's made it possible for us to be sons and daughters of the king. We've done nothing to deserve this treatment. We have done everything to not deserve it. Would your spirit in us cause our hearts to cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father, and relate to you as such, such a good and wise and strong Father and King. Would we find freedom there in our closeness to you?
And will we draw close daily? Help us and keep us in your name. Amen.